Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Alex McLaren. I'm an actor and I've worked as a communications coach since 2002. Now so much business is being conducted remotely, the ways in which we talk, present, build relationships and connect is changing. In this podcast, I want to explore all those issues and prove to you that no matter who you are, you can talk to anyone. Hello and welcome to You Can Talk To Anyone, the podcast where we open the bonnet on our communications engine. I'm Alex McLaren. And I'm Tom Solinsky. And today we welcome a special guest, Ned Sedgwick. Hello, Ned. Hello. How are you both today? (laughs) Very well. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, This is the second of uh, a a number of visits that we want to make to the topic of confidence. Um, And Ned, I've known you since you were a very young confident person yes and you were also <laughs> a very young confident person <laughs> but there's there is a what 15 years between this i'm 47 I, i'm not counting Alex. <laughs> and, uh, i guess the reason i'm raising it is that today we are peers working together but once yes. upon a time you were a child being babysat by me i think when i was briefly um sleeping in a hallway in tom and deborah's flat which was in the basement of your house yeah, it, it all kind of sounds quite Victorian. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, I, I guess the, the reason I'm interested in it is that children have a very different approach, it seems me to mm. me, to this question than the adults that Tom and I have to deal with when we're going in and coaching them in businesses. Yes. Um, in that there's a sort of, uh, there's a, just an innate unselfconsciousness about them. Um, and although we can talk about shy kids and outgoing kids, we don't talk about confidence in the same way. No. One of the first things we talk about is the fact that children aren't specialists. Mm. They haven't decided mm. what they're good at and what they're bad at. And so they're pretty much willing to have a go at, at anything. Mm. And then we put them through a process which is seemingly designed to remove that freedom and that Ooh. confidence and will tell them very clearly that they're good at some things and bad at other things and make them gun-shy. It's called school. Yes. Um, you're experience Ned as, uh, as somebody who's part of a slightly different generation yes they, uh, and I don't want to over labor this this generation talk but it is a it's a it's a really interesting topic and I sometimes think when I'm talking to people your age mm. that there are things not necessarily that I'm missing but I've maybe forgotten well there are a few interesting things I I, I would say working with people now who are uh, sort of slightly more mature vintage mm. and people who are younger than me um, they uh, for a of doubt, tell the tell the listeners how old you are. I am thirty years old. Fine. I am a millennial, mm-hmm. and about four years ago, I was commissioned to make a podcast about being a millennial. Over the years that podcast was being made, millennials went from being kind of the youngest people with <laughs> a voice to no longer the youngest people with a voice. We were replaced by Gen Z, and something I find quite interesting is I would say the experience between my generation and your generation 
may not be as different as my generation and our colleague Gina's daughter, mm. um, who is actually, now I think about it, 20 years younger than me. So that's quite a big difference. <laughs> uh, but no, between Gen Zs and millennials, I think that because of the internet and because of just the social media, because of the prevalence of smartphones, um, at such a young age, it has changed the game a bit and it has changed conversations around confidence. It's changed self-image. It's changed how you portray yourself. You know, I got Facebook when I was 15. And back then, what you would do is you would upload a photo album of 100 photos, of which five of them were good. And the aim (laughs) of the photo album was to make it look like you were cool and having fun. Mm. So there are bad photos of you smoking, bad photos of you drunk, and maybe two or three good photos of you. Mm. Ten years later, you were growing up with Instagram, where you would curate the one or two images of yourself that are the best representation of who you are, how you're looking, what you're doing, or that moment in your life. And you are so much more on show as a result of that. And I would say that that kind of general freewheeling gen, gen X millennial kind of let's go out, let's get, you know, the lager out culture, which we were all kind of part of or, or adjacent to, is more similar than, than the experience of a generation uh, below me. That said, my experience of school was probably quite different to a lot of people for reasons which I've only just become apparent uh, I always struggled quite a lot at school, despite being incredibly confident. Mm. Um, every school report would say how confident I was and how willing I was to talk. And <laughs> Confident is one of those code words that teachers sometimes use, isn't it? It generally means pain in the arse. Exactly. But I was recently diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was 30. And a lot of pieces of my life fell into place. Gosh particularly around my confidence. And essentially, my use of outward confidence as a mask for the things that I was deeply unconfident about and the things which essentially I would refuse do or ignore or cover because being told you are not good and being told that you aren't working hard enough when you're trying your hardest Mm. and still failing essentially eviscerates a lot of confidence. But to make up for that, I, I would be the noisiest person in the room and I would wear my intelligence and my knowledge on my sleeve. And again, I think that this is something I was maybe at the last edge, the last crest of a wave where I was accused of being disruptive and stuff and there would be no further psychological questions asked of me. There would be no attempt at treating that in a in a way that would would help me. So this is <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I didn't know about that, Ned. It's very recent. I'm mean, Tom. Wow. Tom, um, who has to help edit podcasts, I edit and uh, <laughs> clear up messes that I make, both literally and figuratively, is probably well aware that uh, at times my attention to detail is low. We're working for- on it. Yeah. <laughs> so but this is interesting because you're talking here about the confidence you presented mm. and the internal feelings and the gap between them. 
And this is something that I, I was thinking about. We, we briefly we spoke about this last time Tom and I met. We, we were thinking about the difference between the sort of the, the, the feeling of confidence mm. and the behavior of it. Yes. And I started, since then, I've been sort of chewing over my, my sort of questions about what is that feeling of confidence? And I wonder if we're being or rather when whether we're talking about the same thing when we discuss it with different people mm. um so um uh, because i mean particularly when you're talking to men i sometimes wonder whether we are as specific about emotions as we really need to be in order to be useful i think when people are coming to me with kind of confidence challenges I always want to be as specific as possible. So I say, okay, tell me about the situation. And once we get down to it, then we can work from the very particular kind of levers and situations and personalities, mm. and we can work our way through that. And so we never maybe really need to attend to, actually, is this a confidence problem or is it something else? Mm. And I'm just wondering, what, what is the feeling of confidence? That, that was, I mean, I suppose that if you're at school and you're feeling that you're not making the great or meeting people's expectations mm. feeling is probably one of shame or, or guilt there are things which i'm beginning to unpack about myself so essentially <laughs> attention adhd is is a deficit of and i always get it confused between serotonin and attention to detail serotonin or one of those ones that makes you feel happy mm. but it also means that you can be quite easily stimulated so essentially i'm always looking for minor buzzes and one of the ways i get buzzed is talking mm -hmm. but when I'm feeling awkward when there is a silence I do just as much talking if not a little bit more than when I'm feeling supremely confident in a situation mm. and I would say that some people would see me when I'm feeling incredibly stressed in a high pressure situation and I cannot allow a silence I cannot allow two seconds as soon as that happens, my brain starts panicking and it's mm. saying, get that serotonin in, get that in, mm. stay distracted, stay, stay busy. That you get, it's something almost ineffable. It's something almost un uncatchable. There's a difference in the, 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 sort of the happy, confident energy of mm. you and your friends riffing off each other and the energy of, well, the word you used was panic. And that's interesting. I, I kind of wonder whether the sort of the, the adrenaline of that situation is almost it's it's almost separate to the kind of the emotional yeah. <laughs> circuit because we're it's 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 your body reacting mm. to, to 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 threats and certainly there's an emotional dimension to it but it's not it's not part of the emotional suite mm. that we talk about when we're saying hey let's talk about our feelings um, if you're happy to answer this mm. question Ned. Uh, what are the situations that make you feel least confident and least comfortable? Because, you know, you work with us and, and our background is theatre and improvisation, things which make a lot of people feel profoundly uncomfortable and uncertain. But uh, I remember, again, at the risk of coming off like a sort of uh, seedy uncle, uh, <laughs> seeing you doing comedy sketches in front of audiences of parents and teachers when yes. you were about 10 years old. I get nervous before I go on stage. I've done live podcast recordings. And I do get nervous. I think everyone does. And it comes out in funny ways. But I'm not it's not a big deal. Um, I've done lots of speeches at weddings. Um, I'm getting married next month. And I'll be doing a speech at my wedding. I, I'm really excited about it. Every time I do it, I have the confidence, in inverted commas, that I, I know I've done it before. 
So I trust myself. Also, I know that at school, I was told this is something you can do. You yep. can talk. You can distract people. Uh, you know, there is truth in that. And distracting people in a lesson isn't great. But distracting people on stage or distracting people at a wedding or kind of making yourself a center of attention can be a terrible thing, but it can be a good thing. I suppose the things that fill me with absolute dread is when I meet people who don't give anything back, and that is a very selfish way of putting it, when I meet people who are kind of, don't find me funny, or don't, <laughs> and I don't, I don't think I'm that funny. I think that I have the confidence to say the things that come into my head. I would say a lot of other people w- would have similar thoughts and not necessarily be willing to say, or, or take the risk to say it. I find that, incre- and I'll go down a spiral. If I'm not getting anything back, I'll go down, I'll make worse jokes. I'll double down on jokes which haven't landed just to be like, no, no, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, So I think being around certain characters makes me feel, or when I know I've done something wrong, or I know I've done something that might upset somebody else, and I have to make that first step to saying, I need help with this. That fills me with absolute dread, such dread that quite often I will never, ever get around to do it. I was not taught to improve myself at school. I was taught that I was lazy at school. (laughs) I was not taught how the coping mechanisms in order to overcome that deep-seated dread. And instead of that, what I will do is I will... I will do something I'm more interested in and I will avoid at all costs that conversation where I go, I don't know how to do this. Please, can you explain to me with no jokes, no distractions, please sit down and explain to me how I can do this. And I'm really sorry, I will also probably forget what you've explained, so I might need to ask again in two weeks' time how to do this, and that will make it much harder. Mm. That thing you're saying about people who don't give you anything back, Mm. that is actually something that people say to me when I'm working with people in business and they, they're often describing it there's a particular situation it might be a particular boss mm. or a particular client that saps me of confidence and it's because in fact I think that they're that being withholding something mm. um, sort of holding back on reaction and not really joining in the that means that, it, that there isn't a relationship um, and I think that if there is no relationship, someone in uh, most people can tend to feel a bit lost, um, mm. and uh, particularly if they're kind of socially sticky people like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that in order to to, to vary your approach, you will end, you will, may have to do things which feel very unlike you. Yeah, and that I think is really curious. One of the things you, you mentioned the outward bravado. I think sometimes people will develop, and this is one reason why I think confidence, some people look at it slightly sceptically because they, when they see it, they mistrust it because they've come across, everybody's been in that situation where we've, we've, as you say, doubled down or we've gone big Um, uh, because we're masking actually the opposite of what we're trying to display because it's possible we can think of people in the public eye who are full of swaggering confidence which appears to be backed up by absolutely nothing at all. This is it. This feels like there's a 
there's a confidence on the one side and competence on another, and that these two qualities are actually in opposition to each other. And this is something that I, I've been trying to get my head around when it comes to talking to people. It's about what you can convince other people you can do, and then it's about doing it rather than what you feel in your heart of hearts you can do. Because quite often you undersell yourself. You're like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't pitch, I couldn't pick up a phone and call this person to be a guest on my podcast. I couldn't mm. do that. Why not? It's picking up a phone. Oh. And actually, I, I give because I've done a few wedding speeches. Friends have started coming to me for advice. And one of the main things I always say, and it's something I always have in my head before I do anything, is that I'm not being asked to use a different muscle or do a... I'm not being asked to do a handstand in front of 500 people, which I wouldn't know how to do. I wouldn't, I'm not being asked to do a roly-poly. Yeah. I, I don't have the muscles to do that. I probably could, but I don't know. You're just being asked to use your voice and talk to people. And that's it. There's nothing alien or scary about that. Actually, what you're saying there about kind of the the, the promises that you make, <clears throat> and the uh, it's almost like um, there's a sort of there's a contract. You've said <laughs> um, by behaving in a kind of confident way, you're basically saying I'm I'm I'm, I'm you can trust me. <laughs> and this is really, I think, I think can be fundamentally challenging because. Uh, I think this is where some of the imposter syndrome, again, a phrase which comes up every time Tom and I go to work in businesses, the, the idea that if people knew how I felt about inside, they would not employ me to give them credible advice, for example. Um, uh, this is, from, say, from a lawyer or a consultant that you might be working with. Um, and so the, 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 the develops this, this gap between this interior feeling and the way I am then behaving. And that can be alarming to people because they feel so inauthentic. And yes. authenticity is this tremendously important thing which has come, comes around again and again and again and becomes more and more important, as Tom mentioned earlier, in, sort of in politics. We're looking for people who we feel like you're not just saying it, I believe in you as well to the extent that I'll give you my vote. I'm I'm genuinely not sure. Maybe I would, and maybe this is imposter syndrome. Um, but I'm genuinely not sure I would be that good in an industry I didn't believe in or mm. doing something I didn't care about. Because I am slightly evangelical about podcasts. I, I do think that they represent a, fan, a fantastic. What say? So, automatically, you go in there <laughs> jokey or saying something authentic. Oh, I better mm. cover it up and be fun. Mm. They do represent a fantastic way to connect with people. Whether you're doing a podcast. Amazing synergies with these podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> But you can do a podcast about something you're interested in. It can go out to five people and you can interview loads of other interesting people who are interested in that thing. And that in and of itself is great. And being able to kind of proselytize about that does give me a confidence. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to, you've kept the promise you were making enough times to know that it wasn't a one-off, and no. so there's a kind of there's a concrete sort of fund, founded foundation of experience there, yeah. which means that it's not a, it feels like less of a gamble on yourself. Yeah, um, which is uh, uh, which is important. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. You spoke before about Grown Up Land, which was the podcast that uh, we produced and you were one of the hosts of. Mm. Do you remember recording your first episode of Grown Up Land? I do remember it. I remember how panicky I was, but only realising that I had been afterwards. And it was this thing that I was, I was jumping in to make my point a lot. And I think it came out fine, that first episode. Well, it didn't come out fine because the recording studio we were using was crap. Was crap. <laughs> <laughs> but so you, oh, I don't think you remember this. So you scrapped the first episode, did you? Yeah, it was, wasn't good enough quality. So you, you, had, a, you had a pilot. You, you had a, a, a we, free go. We had an accidental pilot. I was so, it was Alison Spittle, May and Bisher. And we didn't really know each other. And I said stuff about getting in fights when I was 18. About, <laughs> uh, I, I really opened up in a way that, I think is one of the reasons why I worked as a host on a podcast because you'll go, hey, Ned, what do you think of carrots? Oh, and then tell an incredibly personal story about how I accidentally sat on a carrot or something, the most embarrassing thing that other people wouldn't. And then only realised two hours after, oh my God, that's yeah. going out to the public. <laughs> um, so how far into the Grown Up Land process was it before you started to feel, oh yeah, it's that thing I'm good at, as opposed to it's this thing that feels untried and untested? <sighs> It's a tough one. It's simultaneously after that episode and never. (laughs) (laughs) Um, After that episode, I knew I could go on and leave with friends. And this is, I suppose, Mm. a big thing for me is that so long as I could leave a lesson with people liking me, that's all I can do. I might not be able to get the homework done, but if I can leave with making everyone have a laugh, that's fine. So I think that experience, it, I definitely got better and better and better and I worked on it. And something I did discover as well is the more recent, if there was a crunch point of research where if I spent two, three days doing research for a topic, I would just shout over everyone because I'm <laughs> so excited about the research I've done. But then if I did too little, I'd shout over everyone to try and cover up the fact I'd not done any research. Um, and there's just stuff like that, which I got more confident on. But in terms of whether I could do it or not, it was pretty immediate that I felt, okay, listen back, learn a bit and just work on that. In terms of improv, when did you start doing improv, Tom? Uh, I started doing improv when I was about 23, 24. So had you ever been on stage before then? Yeah, yeah. I'd done uh, plays at school and then done comedy shows and plays at university. And I'd always found that very easy and and fun. And my first couple of public improv shows were weak, Mm. uh, but it didn't put me off. And I think it was when we started doing our own shows in our own venue and where I was sort of alongside Deborah leading the company that I started to feel 
completely secure and, and confident. Interesting. So the change of scenery, the change of status didn't yes. make you go, oh my God, now now the buck stops with me. But that, that gave me confidence. I think you're mm. right. There's, there's a way of framing that. There's uh, now it's all on my shoulders, yeah. which would have been confidence sapping, but that wasn't my experience. What about you, Alan? I remember you taking to public improvisation incredibly swiftly and easily, but I'm not inside your head. No, well, I mean, I'd done bits of it at Sixth Form and, um, and I'd obviously I'd done loads and loads of acting. I, I, and I pitched myself as a performer into quite, into sort of, I, I would go to, I left Preston and went to the theatres in Manchester, for example. I was in the National Youth Theatre. I was always trying to test, I suppose I was kind of hunting for imprimaturs from high-status institutions. <laughs> um, but um, but I, rem- I remember when I, really thought I wanted to take it seriously was because I was conscious of, as you described, Ned, this gap between how I feel because I was being validated Mm. but also knowing that I I wasn't really engaging with the fear, I think, of, of failure. And so I remember the first time I saw the Spontaneity Shop perform and I had an experience watching it, which was, which I have very, very rarely actually um, when I go to the theatre, which is I can almost, I'm identifying so intensely with what is happening on stage. I felt my heart pounding in my (laughs) chest. Um, And it's, uh, and, and so there was so much adrenaline flooding my system, just watching it, knowing the risks that were being taken on stage. And that I think for me, is why this is an interesting subject because is that the feeling so this is for example most recently I, I got up and I did a poem at an open mic night in Ken where I live I haven't learned anything by heart for a very long time and I could screw this up I could lose it lose my place it was quite long and I could feel my heart pounding in my chest now is that a feeling of confidence I don't think it is a bit but it's a it's a sensation a sensation that maybe I went into improv thinking if I do this it will go away and I'll become a confident improviser and I I strongly believe it doesn't really happen like that um particularly with improv but even with sort of acting with a script you know when you're when you're you've got so much so many people looking at you I mean the the you know I mean I've done best man speeches well, I've done it once actually not as many times as you um but when you stand up do you feel can you feel everything pounding or is it a different internal feeling? Is it just like, oh, good, it's happy days? Um, first time I did it, it was, uh, there's a video and I was so nervous when, you I, could when see, I started. You could see it. Yeah, I could see how nervous I was. Yeah. I couldn't sleep the night before and I was, mm-hmm. incredibly, I was incredibly proud and honoured to be doing it, but I was, it really. And then, um, and then somebody had told me actually uh, an incredibly... Um, drunk boy next to me who told me wait for them to laugh wait for them to finish their laughter because as soon as you start waiting for them to finish your laughter you are in control of their laughter and the first few times I'm talking over it then you can see the cogs turning in my head (laughs) remember what this drunk boy said to me and I wait and suddenly I'm like, oh, um, yeah, yeah is, let it enjoy every second of it. Well, there's there's room for them. Uh, this is my big theme at the moment, Tom, which is if mm. you if it isn't a relationship, then yeah. you're not you're not really comfortable. And as soon as you leave room for them to be in the conversation with you, once you've done it once, it becomes so much easier. And actually, back to the podcasting, I think this is why podcasting's so good, because once you've done it once and had to interview somebody, you can then you have that skill in your locker. Mm. 
And you have the confidence to give someone a call, sit them down and talk about something you're mutually interested in or maybe not even mutually interested in. But one, one kind of final thought on, on my experience and something which I do think has impacted my generation is that we were told when we were leaving university or starting university, well, you're all screwed because of the 2008 financial crash that just happened. And then Brexit happened, which, of course, some people in my generation voted for, but the vast majority didn't. And and our experience has slightly been being screwed over again and again, and we're lucky for what we get. Mm. And I think that that actually is still quite a powerful one. And I really notice a difference between people in the generation above and below. Gen Z have this, we're going to save this world attitude, or we're going to watch the world burn attitude, but we're going to be here. And the generation above have, uh, oh, weren't the 90s so lovely? Uh, (laughs) Wasn't it good before Blair (laughs) turned into a war criminal, allegedly? Um, Whereas my generation is, our experience was, uh, Western, Western culture is hypocritical and murderous. Also, we don't have any money anymore. Also, we're going to screw everything over for you. And I do notice amongst my friends, there is a different kind of confidence or gallows confidence of, oh, well, we may as well. We may as well give it a try. It doesn't really matter anyway. <laughs> the confidence of somebody with a noose around them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, well, and, wow. and the analysis does sound familiar, even if the experience is different. Thank you so much for joining us, Ned. Um, in terms of talking to anyone, um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk to people in podcast form? Well, they can email me at ned at the hyphen spontaneity hyphen shop dot com or they can tweet me uh, at Ned Sedgwick. They can, they can send me a Facebook. That would be, that would be very <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That's generationally totally wrong. Totally wrong. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tom and I deliver training days to people in business, in person or via Zoom, on all of these topics, client meetings, better negotiations, presenting with confidence, storytelling, networking, and more. And if you want to discuss your company and its needs, get in touch with us, alex at the hyphen spontaneity hyphen shop.com or tom at the hyphen spontaneity hyphen shop.com. Um, thank you very much for joining us um, and uh, tune in for more in future. I'm Alex. And I'm Tom. And I'm Ned. Thanks a lot and goodbye. You have been listening to You Can Talk to Anyone with Alex McLaren, Tom Selinski and our special guest Ned Sedgwick. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Selinski. You Can Talk to Anyone is brought to you by the House of the Guilty Feminist and is distributed exclusively by Acast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 